This is The Guardian. Just before we begin, this is a podcast series about stalking and some people might find parts of it difficult to listen to. Over this series, we follow the impact of Matthew Hardy through over a decade of his stalking, a decade which culminated in what's believed by police to be the longest ever sentence handed out to a cyberstalker in a UK court. Since we started making this podcast, Matthew has been granted permission to appeal his sentence. But Matthew being behind bars isn't the end of this story. Hi, hi Jill. Hi, hi. I'm Sharon. I'm Lucy. I'm Hello. Jill. Nice to meet you. Just come oh, through. Wow, your home is so beautiful. Thank you. Is that what's in your garden? Is that is that like a shed? Yeah, so this is our gym, which we built um through COVID. So come oh, out. Wow, and I'll just Everything's very heavily locked everywhere, you'll notice. Inside Jill Greenwood's home gym is the biggest kettlebell I've ever seen in my life. Seriously, I couldn't even push it over if I tried. These are like my children over here. So this one is 56 kilos. That is, so that's the beast. I would deadlift with that one or I've swung with it as well. When Jill's not swinging the beast like it's a bag of Tesco shopping, she works in prisons and with convicted criminals in the Manchester area. The reason that I took this weightlifting on in the first place was because as a probation officer, I know that people are capable of almost anything and I felt vulnerable, physically vulnerable. And the stronger I got, I behaved differently. You know, I'd, I'd hold myself differently. Dealing with stalkers is a regular part of Jill's job, but she didn't expect it to also become a part of her personal life. Because in June 2021, she became a victim of Matthew Hardy. He started stalking Jill when he was on court bail awaiting trial in that bumper case put together by PC Kevin Anderson. A time when you imagine most people would have lain low. It was terrifying, something she never thought she'd experience. That it was significantly personal. I thought that that it was somebody doing it from prison um, and I thought they knew all of this information about my family. So that terrified me. And for somebody who's worked in the job that I've worked in for as long as I have, you know, I've seen it all. I've seen every possible scenario and so I'm more than anyone I'm aware of what's out there but this in the first time ever has made me change the way that how secure I feel in my home. Jill says that Matthew posed as a young female relative on WhatsApp and sent suggestive messages to her partner. The stalking left her so paranoid she even had an escape plan. She kept weapons in her bedroom and slept with her phone in her hand. I still sleep with Indian clubs next to my bed and probably always will. I double, triple check. Every night before I go to bed, I lock the door. 
I'll sit on the sofa, I go back to the door, I'll double check. You can't underestimate how much, you know, your security in your own home is, is just paramount. That's the lasting impact. Jill found Matthew's name and number on a prank caller website, that website I've mentioned where he's been looked up over 4,000 times. Her evidence became part of the court case. And Jill's thought a lot about Matthew, who he is and what he did, from the perspective of both victim and expert. I always have my probation officer head on and think, you know, there's always a reason why someone behaves in, a, in whatever behaviour it is. So, um, yeah, it's a real sort of yin and yang type feeling about him. It's, it's strange. She works with ex-offenders all the time and Matthew's offending stands out. The length of time and the persistence is unusual. Um, usually, you know, someone's picked up for behaviour and there is a change. A lot of the time people are just genuinely scared of going to prison. Sometimes people genuinely start reflecting and, and think, you know, they don't realise, you know, the harm that they cause. Um, so that's where Matthew, I suppose, is is unusual because he didn't seem to be afraid at all of any of the repercussions. This makes me think about something I heard from PC Kevin Anderson, which is that when Matthew was taken into Northwich Police Station for questioning in October 2019, one of the first things he did when he got out was walk to a supermarket and buy a new phone. He was back at it again within hours. And that's where, you know, you start to look at his behaviour as being much more of an addiction that is, is something he is not able to control himself, that he's going to have to do a lot of work on. The sentence is massive. I'm not saying he didn't deserve a long period in prison, but I have to think, is he going to get what he needs on that sentence to help him stop doing it? There aren't enough prisons in the world to lock people up and throw away the key. So society has to do something about it. The alternative is there will be more victims. From The Guardian, I'm Shirin Kale, and you're listening to Can I Tell You a Secret? Episode 6, The Winding Clock. That nine-year sentence, it's just a headline figure. In reality, most criminals only ever serve half their time behind bars before being given parole. The earliest Matthew's coming out of jail is currently April 2026. But he's also appealing his sentence, so it's possible it might be reduced further. So, take an old-fashioned clock and wind on four years. That's how long Matthew's victims should have away from him. Four years of silence. No calls throughout the night, breathing down the phone. None of their family members being accused of incest or adultery or incestuous adultery. No reputations ruined or relationships ended. But eventually, that clock will chime. Matthew will get out. 
So are the victims just getting a break from him? Or is it actually over? After over a decade of stalking, will prison finally be the place to make Matthew stop? Jill's really fascinating for me to talk to because she's got a unique perspective. She's a victim, but she's also a probation officer. She's never directly encountered Matthew at work, but if she did, she'd want to understand why he did what he did as a way to break the cycle of offending. Sadly, what we know of most people in the criminal justice system, and this is not me exaggerating, this is literally almost every case I deal with. It's very hard and it's very unusual where you find a case where they haven't had some kind of trauma. You know, when we're doing assessments, we have a trauma box that you have to tick. Have they experienced trauma? What is the trauma? Was it physical? Have they been ran over by a car? Or was it, you know, emotional? When was it? Was it during the childhood? So it's so common for people in the criminal justice system. Um, And again, it's not an excuse, but it's a reason often for their behavior. So because we know it exists, we have a duty to, to do something about it because what's the alternative? You know, we can't keep people in prison because we know, A, it doesn't work for a rehabilitative effect most of the time, but it's so expensive. So I suppose it's about working with him in a way which just changes habits and puts other stuff in his life that's missing. Matthew's currently being held at a Category B prison. He's on a wing with prisoners deemed to be at a higher risk of attack from other inmates. We contacted the prison to ask what sort of help Matthew was receiving. They couldn't comment on individual inmates, but said neurodivergent prisoners would be assessed and given a support plan with health and educational staff. They said generally, creating a rehabilitative environment was pivotal to reducing offending. To find out more about what that support looks like for Matthew inside, I went back to Donna, his mum. Thank you so much for talking with us. That's okay. She claims there's not much on the table. I don't think he gets any support. Matthew is just in there, just the same as anybody else. I think he's had a little bit of help with his anxiety, but I don't think he gets much help with or support with his autism. He's supposed to have a mentor or or a key worker. He said he hasn't. He doesn't know. Nobody's explained to him who this key worker is or who, who he should go to if he's having problems. I know that Matthew said to me that I think he's supposed to see a probation worker every month, but he's not seen anybody. So I don't think there's any kind of rehabilitation or psychological intervention or anything like that going on. You know, that he can't navigate the prison system like your ordinary everyday person would. He finds it so difficult to get his point across or to say, I'm, a, I'm struggling here, can someone give me a hand? Can somebody help me sort this out? Um, he's just left, really. He's just left to, to deal with it. According to a prison inspectorate report published in 2022, the prison Matthew is in offers monthly contact with a key worker to all prisoners 
That rises to every week for those classified as vulnerable. But that report also raised concerns about low staffing levels which were impacting mental health services. It warned that vulnerable prisoners weren't being sufficiently identified and assessed, especially in the early days of their sentences. More support may be introduced to Matthew down the line, before he gets released. But it also may not, and that matters, because without the right interventions, Matthew might get out of jail and reoffend. So it's ultimately about making sure that prison works to stop him stalking people, which is what everyone wants. If we don't take away from the fact that Matthew has done wrong, we were thinking a short, sharp shock for Matthew, not a long, lingering lashing. A short stint in prison, you think, might have been enough to sort this I, out? I, I know. I, I absolutely am convinced of that. Now, prison is challenging for everyone. That's sort of the point. But for autistic people, it can be particularly difficult. And that can have a potential impact on rehabilitation. Claire Hughes is the Criminal Justice Coordinator at the National Autistic Society. She's spoken to many autistic people about their experiences inside prison. It varies a lot. Um, I would say there are some people that I've spoken to who the structure and the predictability of prison works well for them. But for others, it can be really difficult. That's because they're more likely to experience sensory hypersensitivity. The sound kind of bounces off every wall. You can hear doors being locked and unlocked, prisoners shouting to other prisoners. And what can the impact be like for autistic people if they're in prisons where they're not getting these adjustments made? I mean, it can be horrendous, you know, kind of deteriorating mental health issues. Um, I've known of autistic people who have wanted to be uh, in the segregation unit within the prison because there is minimal, there's less noise. You know, that, that desire to not be anywhere else, you know, to kind of isolate themselves within their cell. Matthew being lonely, Matthew being isolated, according to Donna, it's what got him into this mess. So if Matthew retreats further in prison... That doesn't exactly seem promising. It shouldn't be a time where um, people are just there for a set period of time. We want to see um, change. We want to see rehabilitation so that we don't find ourselves uh, in the same situation, you know, in, in kind of months or years to come. I mean, for some people, the experience of being in somewhere and experiencing that level of stress is the thing that would make them think, I never, ever want to experience that again. And so it does really vary. The National Autistic Society is working with some prisons on an autism accreditation scheme, which puts into place best practice for working with autistic prisoners. Currently, around 10% of UK prisons are signed up. We've seen lots of prisons really kind of considering how to make the environment more autism friendly in the best way that they possibly can. Have you worked with the prison Matthews currently in? Are they working towards this accreditation? It's not on our radar. I haven't had any contact at all um, with the prison. We're always open to having contact with any uh, prisons. Something we've worried about while making this podcast is that by talking about possible links between stalking, Matthew and his autism, 
there's a danger that we're stigmatizing the autistic community is that something that you'd also feel concerned about I think because, um, you know, for lots of autistic people, they are already a stigmatised group, very misunderstood by um, by the general public. And we need to be really careful that if we are focusing on something like autistic people in the criminal justice system, that that's not the only awareness that, that the general public are getting about autistic people. Prison can be really hard for many autistic people, but what about Matthew? Here's the thing. According to Donna, it does seem that time in prison has led to some recognition for Matthew that what he's done is wrong. It sounds like Matthew's had a lot of time in prison, because that's all you get really in prison, isn't it? Time. Yeah. To reflect on what's happened. Has he said to you that he feels sorry for what he did? Has he had that realisation, you know, that it's all hit him, the whole impact of everything? And has he said to you, I regret that? I actually asked him at one point, if you had the chance to sit round a table and speak to each person individually, would you like to do that and say, I'm so sorry? And he said, yes, I would. Because I honestly, Mum, I didn't realise that I was causing that amount of harm. I didn't, I didn't, I was just being silly. I just, I, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. And do you think, given that he's not getting that support in prison now, he will be able to stop doing this when he gets out? Are you confident that this is the end of it? Yeah, because yeah, he's never, he's, well, he's never going to want to go back there, is he has said to me, I don't want anything to do with social media ever again. I don't want to look at the internet. I don't want a phone. And he just wants to live a different life. He wants to, to be involved. And Matthew knows that he's lost a lot. And I'll be with him every step of the way. Don is convinced that Matthew's truly seen the error of his ways and won't keep stalking people when he gets out of prison. And his victims would love for that to be true. But if we look at the evidence around stalkers who get out of prison, it doesn't look so good. Around 55% of convicted stalkers will go on to reoffend. Prison alone doesn't seem to be enough to break that cycle of fixation and obsession. The stalking charity, the Susie Lamplew Trust, is currently pioneering the first stalking intervention programme in the country. At four sites across the UK, stalkers are given tailored therapy to help understand why they stalk people and measures are put into place to reduce their risk of reoffending. The programme's new. It was only piloted in 2018. But there's some evidence to suggest it may work. One 2022 review found that the stalkers they worked with were a third less likely to be offend. But Matthew's not part of one of these pilot schemes. They're only taking place at four locations in the UK. So, Matthew's not currently in an autism-accredited prison or on a perpetrator intervention scheme. And in four years, 
he's going to rejoin a world full of phones and social media. Matthew will have a probation officer when he gets out. But there's also another person who says he's going to be keeping an eye on him. PC Kevin Anderson. I'd like to think that he'll be offered some sort of help to try and make him, you know, change in Kirby's behaviour, you know, um, and, and, and when he's eventually released, whenever that is, it's down to him. If I'm still around Cheshire Police at the time, I'll go and visit him. Hello, remember me, right? And it's up to him what he does after that. If anything comes in, we'll be ready for him this time. We'll be back after this. I'm just not the same person that I used to be. I used to be like a really like happy, bubbly person. Like so happy, I'd never felt any anxiety or depression. I'd never like experienced it. Remember Abby Furness? She's the fire-breathing Ibiza party girl. Ever since this has happened, I can really relate to people when they say that they have anxiety, paranoia, depression. Like, it really has taken its toll on me, like, mentally. Matthew's not the only person doing time. His victims are in a prison too. A prison he made for them. Because... If there's one thing I've learned while making this podcast, it's that trauma doesn't disappear with a prison sentence. I'm constantly looking over my shoulder all the time. I'm really cautious on who messages me. If you message me on Instagram, I probably won't reply. Even on text, I probably won't reply. I don't pick up phone calls. Like, I won't even go out at night to the shops to even get milk. And the shops is around the corner from me. Like, I used to be this free chick that was really fun, that loved to go partying, going travelling. Now I'm even scared to sit in the cinema because, like, there might be someone in the cinema who can see you that control you. Even the cinema, and you guys are probably just thinking, what? The cinema? But my God, the cinema is scary when you've, like, been through stuff like this. From the outside, from Abby's Instagram, you'd think she's living her best life. But that's not how she feels on the inside. If I was to get, like, stabbed or cut, I could see my body healing itself. But because it's in my head, no one can see that I'm hurt. I think he's an awful human being. Hopefully, in prison, he will get the help he needs. But he definitely deserves the time that he's getting and I will never forgive him because the damage he's done is done and it will never change. Stalking is a crime of psychological terror. 78% of victims go on to experience post-traumatic stress disorder. If you look at the work on trauma, most trauma is based on single events. You know, so you assume someone has had a traumatic event that has made them feel in fear of their lives or violence um, or destruction of some kind. I've been thinking a lot about this lasting impact. 
So I got in touch with Dr. Emma Short. She's an associate professor in psychology at De Montfort University and an expert in cyberstalking and trauma. But with stalking, with the nature of stalking, it's repetitive, it's persistent. There are multiple events and the intrusions tend to escalate. They become really widespread. So it's it's not just your own safety you become concerned about. It's often those of the people around you or, or your very way of life. Feeling this way for such a long time can lead to a PTSD symptom known as hypervigilance. If you look at one of the core clusters of symptoms in PTSD, for example, that is hyperarousal um, or hypervigilance, where you're, you're constantly scanning the horizon and looking for threat because that's how you've survived, um, by protecting yourself from that threat. Emma also told me that lots of victims experience rage. Rage at their stalker, but also rage at how society handles stalking. We are not a great society in terms of the degree we blame victims. And I think a lot of people who've been victims of it also blame themselves, um, especially, again, where it doesn't just affect your own life, but it, it, it affects others. So feelings of guilt, even, um, about being the catalyst for that. All of the victims I've spoken to are living with the impact of what Matthew's done. And for all of them, it's different. Leah, the boutique owner, mostly feels anger. What would you say to Matthew if he was listening to this podcast? I, I have no words for him. just think his, what he's done to people is disgusting. And I feel the only thing is I will say is we found you and we proved who you was. And good luck doing it again to other girls because you're not going to get away with it. You can't just say, oh, well, I acted like that because of this. That's it's unexcusable. And it is unexcusable because he's done it for so many years. Like, it wasn't just a one-off. If his family say that he was lonely and he wanted to have friends, well, why don't you message off your own account? Why are you messaging from a girl's account straight up? I don't feel sorry for him at all. I feel sorry for us girls. That's who I feel sorry for, that we've actually even had to go through this in the first place even for a day, let alone years. Others I've spoken to are still terrified. Anxiety, fear, hypervigilance. They do things to your perception of reality. You can't just disable them like you're switching your phone on aeroplane mode. Even though Matthew's in prison, Amy still doesn't feel safe. I'm so scared that he's going to come for me. You know, if it's really affected him inside, how far is he prepared to go this time? You just don't know. That fear will likely never leave Amy. It makes me think of this story she told me, back in her house, an episode of Friends flickering on the TV screen. About an evening, she went into Northwich with her boyfriend, Chris. It was 2019, towards the end of the year, because I remember it was getting dark earlier and it was cold. Me and my partner, uh, we actually went to go get a takeaway in Northwich. Every time I'd go to Northwich, I would get... My anxiety would just go out the window. I'd hate it. I'd start feeling sick and shaky. I would constantly be looking over my shoulder 
like just looking around, watching people, wondering if they're watching me. He's, he said, you know, like, we'll, we'll just go, we'll, we'll pick it up, it'll just be really quick. <laughs> uh, so in the end, I was just like, right, OK, but I'm staying in the van. I'm not, I don't want to get out. We um, pulled up and, yeah, it was, it was dark, there were street lamps. He said, right, I'm going to go in just to see if it's ready, lock the doors when I go, and I'll be right back. And there was a man who was walking up the street. I'd straight away gone on my phone to look down. And then within a seconds, next minute, this man who I don't know, he started banging on the window uh, on my side, screaming, why would you do this to me? I'd shot back in my chair and I was watching him and I just couldn't believe what was happening. And he was banging on the window, screaming, like, why why'd you keep getting me into trouble? His f face, the way he was, just the way he was looking, yeah, quite dark circles and stuff and staring. I heard Chris, I don't know what he was shouting, but he was shouting something and then I could see in the like the wing mirror that he was running towards the van. Um, and he'd, this man had gone. I couldn't even tell you which direction he went in. Are you okay? How does he? Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, yeah, it's just horrible just thinking back and then not. I just didn't really get the help at the time. And then you just feel like so alone and. People don't understand what it does to you until it actually happens to them. It's impossible to know who this man was and whether it could have been Matthew. It was dark and Amy didn't see the person clearly. But maybe the point for Amy isn't really whether Matthew was there or not. What matters is how she feels like, Matthew will always be there, watching. Because this is Amy's reality now. Her sense of safety is forever gone, and all that remains is fear. We approached the Ministry of Justice about our reporting. A spokesperson said, Our thoughts are with the victims impacted by Matthew Hardy's despicable crimes. Supporting neurodiversity in prisons is vital for reducing reoffending, and that is why we are recruiting specialist staff to ensure these prisoners' complex needs are met. We are also continuing to work with the National Autistic Society to help prisons become autism accredited. You've been listening to can I Tell You a Secret, a podcast series from The Guardian. If you need any support around stalking and harassment, you can get in touch with the Susie Lamplew Trust or call the National Stalking Helpline on 0808 802 0300. Further information can be found on The Guardian's podcast page. We'd like to thank the National Autistic Society and Autism Rights Group Highland for all their help and advice on this series. 
This is a podcast series from The Guardian. It was made by me, Shirin Kale. The producer is Lucy Hoff. Original music and sound design is by Axel Coutier. The executive producers are Charlotte Pritchard and India Rackerson. The commissioning editor is Nicole Jackson. If you're following the series, do subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks. Hi, it's Nosheen. Happy New Year's Eve. We'll be bringing you the final instalment of Can I Tell You a Secret on Monday. Today in Focus itself, we'll be back on Tuesday. From all the team, we wish you a very happy new year. This is The Guardian.